We are trying to follow a specific process, and so I'm going to just clarify something that was said by way of our announcements in the, uh, we're going to have one more lesson on the 25th, of course we have the gospel meeting next week, and one more lesson on church leadership, that's the 25th of September. So there will be no forms uh, in the the NPR at the Welcome Center tonight. It will be there on the 25th of September. The elders want that period to be from the 25th to October 2nd. Uh, And David is going to create a Google form. We realize that that week runs up into fall break. And a few of you may be out of town that week. And because of that, you'll have an opportunity to electronically submit those names as well as have the paper copies. So we will, uh, that, that will, the desire will be to have those returned by October the 2nd. So if you'll keep that date in mind, the 25th of October 2nd, that will give the elders time to process those names that are submitted. You know, so often when we talk about the restoration movement, we are thinking about a period of time, uh, perhaps people and places and events that remind us of uh, a people who were driven to try to go back and do Bible things in Bible ways, to have no creed but the Christ, to have no book but the Bible. There was a great desire to try to uh, pursue New Testament Christianity, to be right in our worship and our organization and in our plan of salvation. There was a focus that the message needed to be right. But there was a part of that that indicated that if we had the right message, that it was not something that we wanted to keep to ourselves, but something that we wanted to share with the people around us. And to think in terms of that, we think in terms of how people who love God have always been. You go back to the Old Testament and it was that way. You may remember that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments. And he's coming down and as he does, he hears from God that the people had turned from him to a golden calf. And as they had pursued that, Moses knew he had to make atonement for the people. He had to intercede on their behalf. God says, I'm going to destroy them. And so Moses pleads, please forgive their iniquity. But if not, Exodus 32 and verse 32, then blot out my name out of your book. I don't know that God works that way, but he had such a desire for his national brethren that he would ask that he not be included in God's book of life if they were not included. You think about the Apostle Paul. Paul was the same way. In Romans chapter 9, Paul had such a passion for his national brethren, those that were a part of his common background in his culture, that he would say, I could wish myself to be accursed, separated from Christ." For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Romans 9 and verse 3. And Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, But if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for compulsion is laid upon me, and woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I think it's a fair question for us to ask if there is a time in our Christian past where we really had a zeal for sharing Jesus with others. Maybe it is that that has waned, that as we have lived the Christian life longer, that we've lost focus on how important it is for us to share Jesus with others. It may be that the need for us is to restore our passion for the lost. 
But if we've never really had that as a driving passion in our lives, then maybe the same things that we'll see tonight can help to kindle in us a fire of concern about the people around us who are going to face our Lord in the judgment but who are not ready to do so. The book of Acts is the history book of the church. And you have Luke writing that book the same as he did the book of Luke. And he says, the first uh, treaty I composed, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up to heaven after that he had given uh, orders to uh, the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he showed himself alive uh, after his suffering with many convincing proofs. And he spent with them 40 days speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard of from me. For John indeed baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when they had gathered together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, at this time, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times and the epochs which my Father has chosen of his own authority, but you will be, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8. As we see really, truly, where the book of Acts, where it all begins for the church, you have Jesus with his hand-picked disciples. He is giving them marching orders, what's most important to him, what he wants them most focused upon. And what it boiled down to is that he wanted them to share him with the lost everywhere. Now, as we find them going out, beginning in Acts chapter 2, they do that faithfully. But there comes a point in the early history of the church to where persecution came and it spread them out. And Acts 8 and verse 4 says that they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. It became everybody's business. In the church with whatever else was going on in their life, the central focus of the people of God at the very beginning, the New Testament church of the first century, was to share Jesus with those around them. And God wants his followers today doing the same thing. The question is, what will help to restore our passion for the lost? I want to notice four things from the text that we have read together in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8, and see four things that we need to do if we are going to restore New Testament Christianity when it comes to our passion for the lost. The first thing that we're going to have to do if we're going to restore our passion for the lost is we're going to have to emphasize God. Now if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8, it's an incredible thing. It has to grab your attention as you start reading that in those eight verses there's this heavy emphasis on God. Will you notice it with me that first of all there's Jesus and Jesus, the Son, the Son of God, is presented to us as Jesus as Lord and with personal pronouns, you'll count it out 12 times in eight verses. Luke, right out of the gate, mentions Jesus that many times. But in addition to that, I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit is mentioned three times in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 8. And then the Father is mentioned three times in addition, uh, in verse 4 and verse 7. And then in addition to that, you'll find that Luke records that Jesus is there with his apostles and he is speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God, verse 3. And so there's this emphasis on God. 
And I think maybe one of the reasons why we're not as engaged in the mission as sometimes if we're not is because we forget that it has to be an emphasis on God. But what does it mean to emphasize God in soul winning? First of all, it's an emphasis of what God wants. Evangelism is about what God wants. And Jesus makes this clear as he uses two different words in that first paragraph. He uses the word gave orders and the word commanded. To give orders simply means to lay down instructions for beneficial living. And the word commands means, as we would think it does, to tell somebody what they need to do. And so Jesus, out of the gate, tells his disciples that that to do this mission is to do what God wants. You'll notice in verse 7 that he mentions that it's the Father's authority that's driving you on. And if you'll think about what Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew, in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And so an emphasis on God is an emphasis of what God wants. And we cannot read the New Testament without coming to the conclusion that God wants you and me involved in trying to bring others to him. An emphasis on God is an emphasis on what God wants, but it's also an emphasis of what God can do through us. If we can look at soul winning as a partnership between God and us, he calls us into this relationship with him to where we get to partner with him. But we step back and we see that God is the the senior. He's the chief partner. You look at all the resources that he brings to the table. He is the one who provided the sacrifice in the first place. He's the one who conceived of an eternal plan and he revealed it in his book. He's the one who gives us the resources, the time, the mind, the opportunity And he's the one who gives us the strength. He's the one who established the church. He knows what's possible. He knows that Jesus is the one who made everything, including us, Colossians 1 and verse 16, and he knows what's in the hearts of human beings, according to John chapter 2 and verse 25. Not only does he know that, but he realizes that in every place and in every generation that there are all kinds of different hearts. There are some hearts that are not going to be open, There will be some hearts that will turn away, but he also knows that there are some hearts that are good and honest, according to Luke chapter 8 and verse 15. God knows that his law of sowing and and planting and reaping, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 7, it works. If we get out and do it, we see results from that. He realized from the very beginning that if there's time and commitment taken by his people, that if they will go out and to share the good news, that the church will grow. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. He says, you were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death that he might present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made him a minister. He understands what happens. In the first century, this spirit was caught by the church as a whole. If the church as a whole today gets a hold of that, he knows what will happen. He knows what happens and what he can do through a church, an individual congregation like Lehman, if we get a hold of that. And he knows what happens if we as individual Christians understand what Paul says in Philippians 2.13, that it is God who is at work in you both the will and the work of his good pleasure. 
God takes ordinary men. He takes that ragtag group of disciples and he begins to change the world on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so an emphasis of God is not only an emphasis of what God wants, but it's an emphasis of what God can do through us. But it's also an emphasis of what God knows is possible. God knew that the humblest of people would be able to make that kind of a difference and turn the world upside down, Acts 17 and verse 6. But here's the thing that we might do sometimes. We might look and say, well, that was a different time. That, that they had a, a, a time when people were looking for the Messiah. There were the Jews who had been for all of these centuries studying their Bible and they were waiting for this. The Roman Empire brought a situation about when the fullness of time had come that God could send forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4 and verse 4. We can't reproduce that today. Can that happen today? A world that's being eclipsed by a worldview that makes Christianity almost invisible? Well, you know, when I for 13 years served as the preacher for the Bear Valley Church of Christ, the there was no doubt that the, the main, the central work of that congregation was the Bear Valley Bible Institute. They were into preacher training. And as a part of that work, they established overseas foreign extensions. And they had a vision to have 50 of those in 50 years. There are now 54 of those schools in 28 countries. And they are teaching folks in their own language the gospel. They send out a report every year in which they talk about what just the current students and the current teachers in those schools have done. So not the folks that have already graduated and are out preaching the gospel, but the ones who are actually training. They go out on campaigns. And what they found in this last year, which was a year in which they're still trying to recover from government restrictions in COVID, was that there were over 4,000 baptisms in those schools around the world, most of them third world countries. That's been about the same number that they have converted in the last four years. So you take that number, 4,000 times four, that's 16,000 new Christians on the planet today as the result of the gospel being preached all over the world. Can you imagine what kind of an impact that's making in villages and cities and towns all over the world with that many new Christians? And if one out of 10, uh, uh, 10 of those Christians baptized somebody else, that's 1,400 more. Do they serve a different God than we serve? Do they have a more powerful message than we have? You see, when we think about the God that's at work in those countries, it's the same God that can be at work in Bowling Green and in Warren County. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church through Jesus Christ forever and ever, amen. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. The point is this. If we're going to restore our passion for the lost, we've got to emphasize God, what God wants, what God can do through us, and what God knows is possible. But then second, if we're going to restore our passion for the lost, we have got to emulate Jesus. You notice how Luke begins the book of Acts, in Acts 1, 1 and 2. He says, I wrote another account, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I believe there's significance to the order of the wording there that Jesus certainly talked about evangelism, but he did it. The book of Luke ends with Jesus being raised from the grave and the book of Acts picks up right there in talking about Jesus discussing with the disciples the importance of the soul winning task that they had and that we have. 
But what you notice when you read the book of Luke, and really some believe that Luke and Acts should be one book together. One is part one and the other is part two. When you look at Luke, you see Jesus talking about, but also demonstrating his interest in evangelism. Well, you think about the teaching of Jesus in the parables. Look at how many parables focus on evangelism. There's the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8. There's the parable of the dinner in Luke chapter 14. There's the lost parables in Luke chapter 15. All of these are emphasizing this idea of souls and how important they are to God. You begin to think about how Jesus is talking about evangelism, but he's also training men to go out and do that work. In Luke chapter 10, he sends 70 disciples, two by two, under the loss of the household of Israel. He sends them ahead of him. He doesn't send them in his place. Jesus is coming, but he sends them first. And then in Luke chapter 24, Jesus sends 12 apostles all over the world. But he says, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And that's a promise, by the way, that extends to us. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. And so Jesus is training and is preparing and equipping his disciples to go out and to win souls. But then there's what Jesus does. He interacts. You can see in his daily interactions how he's concerned about souls. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, he says, Those that are well do not need a physician, but those that are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 56, Jesus tells James and John, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save their lives. And to Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and verse 10, he says, for the Son of Man is, to, is come to seek and to save the lost. I'm impressed with Jesus that he talks about it, but he does it. A Sunday night crowd hearing a lesson on evangelism from the preacher. You need to hear me talk about it. You, hear, you need to hear me preach about it. But you need to see me practicing it. If I am going to be following the example of Jesus, then it has got to be important to me. And it needs to be important to you. That begins with our example. By setting the table, by the people who are exposed to us, it gives us an opportunity. But then as we pray for those opportunities, we have got to be ready to walk through those doors. Jesus did, and so must we. When we look at the relationships that we're engaging in Monday through Saturday, we can't let those be an end in themselves. They have got to be a means to a greater end. We don't want to face our co-workers and our classmates and our contacts outside of Christ knowing that they have an eternal soul without us emulating Jesus and focusing on demonstrating it in our daily lives. If we're going to restore our passion for the lost, we've got to follow Jesus' example. Jesus did it, and he talked about it. But then third, I want you to notice that in restoring our passion for the lost, we must embrace his words. Let's go back to that first part again in verse 2 through 4, and you'll find how Jesus, with two different words, talks about the command, about the orders that come from the Father with regard to the kingdom matters. And so as you look at those meager disciples, many of them uneducated men, they're listening to Jesus and they take to heart what he says. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the world. Now, I am a geography nerd and so I looked up, I was trying to figure out what is the city that's the farthest away from Jerusalem. 
Now, I think I'm right in this, but as I measured it out, I think Taronga, New Zealand is the city that's the farthest from Jerusalem. It's 10,260 miles. Now, I don't know if the gospel got there in the first century. I don't even know if Taronga, New Zealand was inhabited in the first century. But I know that the church made its way there. It's been established there. We visited that congregation a few years ago. I knew a man who served as a missionary there for eight years. The disciples took seriously what Jesus said, and everywhere they went, they went taking the gospel there. One of the things you do as you go through a book is you try to notice some of the key words. And one of the key words in the book of Acts is the word numbers. The word numbers appears 15 times in the book of Acts. That's almost half of all New Testament occurrences. And every time you come across the word number in the book of Acts, no exception, it's always talking about soul winning. Not only is it talking about soul winning, but there's always a connection with that word numbers to the word of God and people believing the word of God. God is number conscious and he wants us to embrace his word. Jesus tells those same disciples in Acts chapter 1, back in John 16 and verse 13, that the spirit of truth was going to guide them into all truth and was going to reveal everything that he had taught them. And so when we look in the New Testament at those other books from Romans through Revelation, we're seeing those things that the spirit moved them to write. And so we see so much written about evangelism. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, Paul says, Though I am free from all men, yet have I made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. James chapter 5 and verse 20, Let him know that he who restores a sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. In Jude verse 23 and 24, he says, Some I want you to save, snatching them from the fire, and others have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted with the flesh. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. As we embrace his words and understand that he has given us command in order to do this, we're going to go out and we're going to share Christ. If we're going to restore our passion for the lost, one other thing that we've got to do is expect great things. The Great Northwest Fire of 1910 consumed 3 million acres in northern Idaho and western Montana. It killed 86 people and they died grotesque deaths. The silver in their pocket melted. Many of those that were found were found with their faces turned toward the oncoming flames. It all happened in a mere six hours. And so many casualties. There are, are apocalyptic descriptions in newspapers of the time, but there were also a lot of heroic savings from death. There was a, a ranger by the name of Edward Pulaski who led his crew to safety by having them divert into a mine tunnel, save their lives. There was another ranger by the name of William Rock who led his crew to a place where the fire had already burned and he was able to save his crew. Another man, another firefighter, an arranger by the name of Joe Hom, he lit an escape fire and he ordered his men to lie down. And they did heroically and bravely, and it saved all of their lives. They say that hundreds of lives were saved by the actions of a few courageous men. And there's no doubt why that people who are little boys and little girls growing up would want to be firefighters, to be first responders, because of the lives that can be saved. When we read Jesus' words in the New Testament, 11 times Jesus uses the word hell, Gehenna. He speaks of that as a place of unquenchable fire that we are to avoid. 
Jesus tells us of how awful it is for any soul to die lost. And in the book of Luke, Jesus tells us exactly what it means to be lost. He says that to be lost means to go to hell. Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. To be lost means to lose one's soul. Luke chapter 12 and verse 20. To, lo- to die lost means to be everlastingly destroyed. Luke 17, 27. And so our Lord wants us, when we look at those around us, to realize that they are possessed of an eternal soul and that most souls are going to be lost. And having that understanding, we realize that we're not just first responders. We're the Lord's only responders. But you see, Jesus does more than just tell us about the prospect of one being lost and of eternal destruction. He also gives promises. It's amazing how relatively little from a physical and an economic standpoint that these disciples had. And yet he points out what they had on their side. The first thing they had was... They had the, the, in the promises of Jesus, they had the power of God. As they had God's power to help them in doing this, it was in a special way. In, in verse 5, he says that the Father is going to send the Spirit and he was going to empower them. We don't have that to confirm the word today, but we have boldness and we have confidence if we ask God for it and if we fill our hearts with his word. But then he also speaks of authority. In verse 7, they said, hey, we want to know if the kingdom of God is going to be restored. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that are fixed by the Father's authority. What he's basically saying is, you leave the Father's work to the Father. You focus not on God's timetable or what God's at work doing, but focus on what you can do. And then he gave them a vision. And the vision was very simply, start where you are and then move out. I'm a firm believer in overseas mission trips. I've been on quite a few of them. But I believe that the greatest work that we'll ever do is right across the street, where we live every day. And the thing is that we still have the resources that Jesus promises in Acts chapter 1. We still have God's power. We still have his authority. And we still have that same vision Maybe we have convinced ourselves that we are not able to do what they did in the first century, but maybe we have not focused on those resources that he's given to us, the power, the authority, and the vision. So what can we do? If we want to expect great things, how can we set that in motion? What can we do right now, this week, that will help us? We noticed a moment ago that list there can be very helpful. The first thing that we can and must do is to set some goals. I believe that we should set goals as a church. I may have in some place in a Bible class talked about, I don't know, those of you who are old enough and remember uh, Y2K, do you remember how scary that was, those who are old enough that we thought everything was going to come to an end when it turned January 1st, 2000? Well, we we didn't know what was going to happen, but we thought we better be planning if the Lord comes or if everything falls apart. And so at Cold Harbor, where I was preaching at the time, we had the goal of we're going to have 100 baptisms in Y2K. 100 in Y2K. Didn't even come close. But we baptized 24. It's the most that we had ever baptized. I wonder how many we would have had if we hadn't set a goal. I want to challenge this. I don't even really know. It's a, it's a collective challenge. We're in September of 2022. How many folks can we baptize? What kind of a goal? Not just that, how many disciples can we make? How many folks can we win to Christ and begin to nurture in a relationship? How many folks can we talk to to about 
with regard to Jesus? Can all of us, each one of us, find somebody that we can reach out to? That's number two. Getting started is perhaps as simple as saying, who can I target in my circle of influence? Who can I encourage? Who can I love? Who can I help? Who can I go up to and say, at some point, having developed a relationship, would you like to study the Bible with me? Number three, be a bridge to somebody. Maybe the intimidation for you is you think there's no way I don't feel equipped to go and try to share with somebody how to become a Christian. But maybe you can turn them over. Maybe you can be the bridge that gets them to somebody who can study the Bible with them. Hiram or David or I or uh, elders or, or various others that we can mention who are comfortable with sitting down and studying the Bible with them. But also, number four, realize in your mind that as long as there's time, there's hope. Maybe you believe that whoever it is that you have in mind just would not be receptive to the gospel. But maybe with enough time and enough effort, their heart may begin to soften. And then realize that the people around us are souls. Lord willing, if all things hold together, a special day is going to come up on Saturday, November 12th. You may not know this, but I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. And I'm taking all three of my boys with me down to Starkville, Mississippi for the Georgia-Mississippi State game. Now, so far, Dale's the only one I've ever taken with me to a football game before. But I remember the last time I went to a game, it was with Dale. We were at Sanford Stadium, which is where Georgia plays. And there were 100,000 folks filing into that stadium. And it was incredible. And there's this sense of fraternity that you feel no matter who your team is. There's certain traditions, certain rites and rituals that you go through in those games. What you say before the kickoff and what you say at various moments, what songs you sing. And, and you feel that sense of, of oneness, of almost family. But it dawned on me in that moment that every one of those 100,000 people have a soul. The people that we're going to be driving up and down the roads with tomorrow the people that we are across from, the people that we work with, that we go to school with, the dear friends that we have, the folks that we love and like and are sharing life with who are outside of Christ, each have a soul. And the challenge that we have is to see past the earthly relationship and to see the soul. You know, I've, I've seen various cathedrals in Europe, and maybe you've seen some of those beautiful, ornate, uh, just opulent in their nature. And all of these places were places that were once places of worship, but they're now mostly museums and they're tourist attractions. And while they were never places where people were taught the New Testament truth, they were places that were filled with believers in Christ. But somewhere along the way, the members lost sight of their mission because they lost possession of their passion. It can happen. You know, I was reading in the Christian Chronicle and they said that since 1990, 1,209 congregations of the Lord's people, of, of churches of Christ, have closed their doors. That's 9% of members of churches of Christ. That's almost 1 in 10. And if you look at it from a number statistic, 14% of members of churches of Christ since 1990, are no longer to be found. What happens? If we're not careful, buildings can become museums of memories. 
What it takes is a restoration of passion. And maybe that's something that seems far off from us. A a congregation that's nowhere close to closing its doors. But don't we want to be vibrant, growing people? A church that's expanding and growing and reaching more souls who are going to stand before Christ. It means we've got to be near to Him. When we look at the book of Acts and we examine the first century church, our first century counterparts who were building and growing the church, we see that they understood that they had very little and so there had to be an emphasis on God. They saw in Christ their Lord, the one who was their example, and they emulated him. And when he spoke, they listened, they they embraced his words, and they had the full expectation in view of the never-ending eternity that great things would happen. We need to reflect that ourselves. I think about one, Joanna, a disciple of Jesus. Ordinary, we might read over her in the text, but she was somebody who was staying close to Jesus. She took care of him. She supported him in his ministry in Galilee, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 3. And she followed Jesus all the way to the cross, Luke chapter 23. Jesus had healed her, and so she stayed close to him, and she was there at the cross. Even after he died, she wanted to take care of him and to prepare his body. And so when Jesus is raised from the grave, in Luke 24, 1 through 10, she's not only one of the first to see him, she's one of the first to share the news of the resurrection. When you're close to Jesus, you share him with others. The challenge for me is, am I sharing Jesus with others? If not, is it because I'm not close to him? And if I'm not close to him, am I drifting away from him? But on the other side of that, As I focus on the people in my life and I try to bring them closer to a relationship with Christ, it's going to bring me closer to Him as well. You know, there are cries, there are calls that are a part of of folks' existence, all of us. If there's an emergency, what do we say? Call 911. If we're on fire physically, stop, drop, and roll. There's just things that we know to say. There are cries that are a part of life. There are also some cries that should be a part of every person's life. There's the cry of faith, Abba Father. There's a cry of repentance, Lord be merciful to me a sinner. And there's a cry of confession. The cry of confession that the Ethiopian eunuch made, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Maybe tonight there is the need for you to call out in the cry of faith, To make God your Father through obeying Jesus Christ. Maybe there's a cry of repentance that's needed to cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Maybe there's a cry of confession. You need to make the confession that the eunuch made. Maybe in order to become a Christian by being baptized or maybe as a child of God who needs to be restored. Or perhaps it is that we could pray for you. This moment of invitation, Bryce is about to lead us in that song. If it is your invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.